Well, I really want you to be able to look at this text today. Um, you know, we, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 6, exploring a handful of verses. I'm going to give you a little bigger context in just a moment. But, you know, if you're new to gathering with us, maybe new to, to watching online or, or studying through the Bible uh, with us as we do that, you know, this, this Bible is God's design to reveal some things to us. When you approach it, 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 it wants to be applied in our lives. It does not want to be a book on a shelf. It does not want to be something that we get clever ideas from or you know, can have a cool discussion about. It wants to live in us. It's a living word. And to do that, it's designed a certain way. Right? We don't overlook that. It's, it's not dropped down out of heaven. There's not a new edition of this coming that's going to just appear out of nowhere on the doorstep of the church. It is, it is written by the Holy Spirit through people into specific moments and therefore specific lives before you and I showed up. And so part of you and I applying this word means understanding what it was saying to the original audience. And that's how God's designed his word. So, you know, we talk about interpretation and application uh, there's a little bit of a skill that's behind that. And God designed it that way, right? He didn't design this to be read like a comic book that you don't know any of the characters, none of the background, you've never followed the story before, but you're just going to pick it up and start reading it and it's going to make perfect sense to you. That's not how God wrote this, right? When you get to Hebrews, you guys have noticed there's a lot of backstory here that's not going to get covered. It's just going to be assumed that you, you can follow along. And we're about to jump into the deep end of the pool today. But can I just say this to you? The Bible is written into a culture that's predominantly illiterate. They've got no books that they take home from church with them. There is no written Bible for any of them. What they learn, they learn by attending meetings, word of mouth, and hearing things repeated to them week in and week out. And they live in distances sometimes, limited in their abilities to gather together. They, they, they don't have a school of word class, something you've attended this morning, where they could hear some background on systematic theology. They don't have a giant Wayne Grudem book they can take home and follow up some of that stuff. They got none of that. And yet the Bible's going to speak to them in a way that seems way over their heads. And yet it's inspired by the Holy Spirit to be read and understood by this audience. And so I, I must say all that a little bit for the fact that the Bible verses we're about to spend time in today may feel for some of us way over our heads. We get to take this home with us. We've got like 15 of them packed away in our house. We can read them anytime. We can... We can download a podcast of anybody. We can, we can re-listen to this message all week long. We have got so much going on in our lives that this first century audience did not have. We are without excuse. The deep things of this Bible should not seem out of reach to us. But yet I know sometimes they do. But that's kind of the thrust of this message today. And so I'm going to get through it as best I can. I didn't realize how late I'd be starting today. <laughs> but right, let me give you some backstory here. So we're going to back up from the verses in Hebrews 6 to Hebrews 5. The title of the message today is Salvation and Sluggishness. So Hebrews 5 verse 11. We've read these verses before. I'll just reference them because they are the context into which the rest of these passages come. The writer says, about this, and this here is the high priesthood of Jesus that he was describing earlier. About this, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you have become dull. Right? And that word there is significant. The word nothros, it means sluggish, lazy, slothful, dull. That's the condition that they're in, and that's what's being addressed. You've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled. Right? That's an expectation in the Bible. If you've come to Christ, the Bible expects you to become good at this. 
skillful at it. Unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. All right, note before we get too far here, there's a problem being addressed and there's a solution being presented. The problem being addressed is that word, nothros. You've you guys in the first century here walking with Jesus, you've got nothrous disease. You've become dull, sluggish spiritually. So that's the problem that's trying to get addressed. That's the reason why we're hearing this passage that's here. And then the solution has to do with training and meat and learning by constant practice to discern good from evil. Right? So that's what's being presented to them. They needed to hear this. We need to hear it for ourselves. A little different setting than theirs. And then verse 1 of chapter 6. Therefore, let's leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, right? This is the solution. Let us, let us keep growing. Let us keep learning. Let us get deeper in what we know and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. And of instruction about washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and the eternal judgment. This we will do, if God permits. For it is impossible. Now listen, another warning in Hebrews. There are warnings all over this book. They're intended to kind of make you take a deep breath and catch your attention. It's impossible. In the case of those who've once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that drunk the rain that's fallen on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's useless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, sorry, can you catch the contrast? There's so much interpretive help in this passage. So we just heard. In the case of some, right, a few verses earlier, in the case of those who, and he gives a description, now he turns to them and he presents a different case. This is like a case study. You have one group, you have another group, he says. But though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation, as opposed to that other group we described earlier. Right, hang on to that. For God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. And we desire that each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish. Right? This is where we started. This is where this verse ends, that you may not be this. Some of you are this, but you may not be this, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. So let me just highlight two things as we're going to rush into some deep water here. The two things, there, there is a, I'm going to call it the Hebrews moment. There's a Hebrews moment in this passage, and then there's a historic moment in this passage. And most of us are more in touch with the historic moments. But the Hebrews moment is difficult life, Noisy life, alternatives available to not believing God, but to believing something else. And they've begun to thin out and move in the direction of something else. That's these people. And they are being described as being slothful. They've lost their zeal. There's not energy in them. They're not motivated toward God. And a contrast gets set up here. 
There's a warning here by setting up a group and drawing your attention to them. And then he comes back to this group. And those are all things that are important to see. But eventually we're going to land in the doctrine of salvation, right? Verse 9 that says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. So what we end up here in this passage is a, a comment, a warning that gets our attention. And then eventually the writer is going to pull us back and say, hey, we're, we're about to learn the true nature of salvation by interacting with this passage. So very appropriate, right? This is where systematic theology is unbelievably helpful because this is not the only passage in the Bible about the doctrine of salvation, is it? And you're going to need to bring the other passages with you as you go to interact with this one. Otherwise, you could draw some poor conclusions. And there have been a variety of conclusions, right? This is where the historic moment about this passage is a passage that awakens something that sounds like you could lose your salvation, you know. And that is what this passage sounds like, right? And you wouldn't be the first in history to try and come to grips with, all right, so what's the nature of salvation? Something that's shown up in your life that might not be there tomorrow. Something that's shown up in your life that could run a course that it would come to an end and you would no longer be saved. All right, so we're trying to understand the nature of salvation in this passage. All right, so historically, right, Richard Phillips quotes John Wesley. John Wesley is not a slouch in the Christian universe. John Wesley you know, his name will be remembered. After today, in the 30 years of being here, no one will remember my name. But John Wesley, he will be remembered. And he had a very different view than some people had. John Wesley, the great Methodist leader, made much of these verses, writing, this is John Wesley's words, must not every unprejudiced person see the expressions here used are so strong and clear that they cannot without gross and palpable wrestling, be understood of any but true believers. These are verses, John Wesley says, are about true believers. Richard Phillips goes on and says, people who hold this interpretation cite these verses as a key proof against the assurance of salvation or eternal security. Wesley was typical of many others when he wrote, quote, on this authority, I believe a saint may fall away. That one who is holy or righteous in the judgment of God himself may nevertheless so fall from God as to perish everlastingly. And John Wesley would not be alone in interpreting this passage that way. Many would. Maybe many here today have. But there would be others who would stare at this passage and would come to a different conclusion. Other big names from the Christian universe like John Calvin or Charles Spurgeon or you know, more modern guys like John Piper who would not be in agreement with John Wesley. They would be more in agreement with the Westminster Confession of Faith that represents, I think, well, Reformed theology. It says, they whom God hath accepted in his beloved effectually called and sanctified by his spirit can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. All right. So whatever theological pool you've come from and you've come from one, right? We, we either have sound theology or unaware theology. We just don't know why we believe what we believe exactly, but you've gotten around this passage and, and it falls into something of a conclusion that, okay, so this, this describes the losing of your salvation or, or maybe your position is more something of an eternal security. I believe that I'm eternally secure as a believer. And then maybe you come from the reform world, you understand that this is a reference to the perseverance of the saints, Right, so this is the realm in which these words are going to play in. So, complicated verse. And hours and hours of trying to think through, okay, Lord, how to make this a one Sunday morning presentation when volumes have been written in this category it was not an easy task. And then I spent hours and hours in categories that I felt like, nope, 
too complicated. Uh, let's not live in that land. Although all of them would be helpful points. Um, I felt like the Lord said, hey, how about, how about you just get the initial moment of salvation right? How about you just do that today? All right, so my question for us, because this, this doctrine is about the doctrine of salvation. What do you believe about salvation? All right, so I'll put a question in your outline. Where does your doctrine of salvation begin? Beginning points are extremely critical to understand in scripture. So where does yours begin? Because most of us, when we start talking about our salvation, uh, you know, I got saved in 1979. I'm going to start in 1979. I'm going to tell you a little bit about what was going on with me. And then I'm going to tell you about the decision and the aisle that I walked. I remember the building that it was in. I remember walking down the aisle and coming to the front, praying a prayer and beginning this relationship with Jesus. And so I'm going to talk to you about that. That's, that's for me, the beginning of my salvation story and, and probably yours as well. But did you know the Bible doesn't begin our story there? And it's very important to notice this. So we're going to wade into some deep water here. But remember, we're wading into something that was written by the Holy Spirit to the first century church who was full of illiterate people. And this was supposedly not over their head. So if you read this and you kind of go, wait, what is that word? Wait, what is that word? Wait, what is that word? Uh, this is the Holy Spirit speaking to an audience who didn't have nearly the education we have. So we can get this. We just might need to put a little effort into it. So some deep verses today. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. If you will, this is the Apostle Paul unpacking the doctrine of salvation. How did this come to us? What's it about? Well, this is him explaining that to the first century church in Ephesus. Verse 3. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All right, so where does this salvation originate? Well, home base is God himself. This whole thing that's come to us the salvation that finds us, that we will repeat to others, it starts with God. Verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So whose decision comes first? Right, I want you to see three things in this passage. We're going to visit them again, but... God is making decisions. This passage is, is describing a plan, a purpose, a will that gets put in place before any of us come along. There's time in this passage. Things were done at a particular moment. Pay attention to that because it's very significant. When were these decisions made? And then you and I are going to make a decision in this passage as well. So notice all three of these things in this passage. They get highlighted over and over again. So he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This salvation that finds us is a decision made in God before any of us draw breath. Before we've had a good day or a bad day. Before we decided to be religious or not religious. Before we believed rightly or wrongly, a decision was made by God. And that decision included that we should be holy and blameless before him. So I'm going to stand before God. And I am going to be holy and blameless. Does that sound arrogant for me to say that to you? I absolutely guarantee you I'm going to stand in the presence of God holy and blameless. And that could sound arrogant, couldn't it? If my theology is man-centered. But if I understand when this decision was made, that was part of the decision he made. Was that that would be true of me. Because he decided for it to be true. That's what God-centered theology does for us. When God is the center of the universe, his decisions are much bigger than my decisions. right? And that doesn't mean I don't have a part to play. 
But this is how it gets presented to us. In love, verse 5, he predestined us for adoption. Before the worlds began, he made a decision and a plan was put in place in advance. He did that for our adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So now we just get introduced to this word purpose. Fall in love with that word. It's a massive word. It means that from Genesis to the end of Revelation, it's like there's a, a software program running in the background. And stuff is happening, but it's not just randomly happening. It's happening because God installed a purpose for everything to report back to. His will, his purpose is in the daily spaces of our lives. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. All right, so when he did that, he made known to us the mystery, the program running in the background that we were only suspicious of. I think I hear something, but I'm not sure I do. Why does all this stuff keep coming out the way it does? Why does things keep unfolding in history the way they do? Well, because there's this mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in christ as a plan when was that plan decided upon before the foundations of the world before you made a decision before i made a decision before anything about us god had a plan from the foundations of the world for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth verse 11 In him, we have, we have it. We have obtained an inheritance. Why is that? Well, because we were predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So everything that's been going on in the universe, everything that's brought a moment of influence to anything that's going to be determining the outcome of God's story, he has been working all things after the counsel of his will, a plan that he decided to put in place before anybody did anything. Everything reports back to that. So listen, before I'm going to give you a little bit of a punchline here, where we're going. So everything that's happening in anybody being saved is underneath this umbrella. All the details report back to this. So if somehow this is going to fail, it's the plan that has a problem. Or does the plan have a problem? Because it is God's plan. And he does make assurances that it's going to be as he said it was. Now, if that's not true... You have a systematic theology nightmare on your hands. If God came up with a plan that may or may not happen, then you and I are a big group of suckers here today. Because we're all here worshiping the God who's going to take us out of this fallen world and give us an eternity with him. Are we not? But what if that part of the plan doesn't work either? Would you buy some swamp land? Got some great Florida property for sale. What if God's plan doesn't work in Hebrews chapter 6 the way it doesn't work in eternity? Right, make sure whatever conclusions you start to create, this is where systematic theology helps. Because if somehow something of God's creation goes this way in Hebrews chapter 6 and God didn't have that in mind in his plan. What's to say something else isn't going to happen between the time that you and I die or God closes the chapter on planet earth. And whatever you and I thought heaven was going to be, maybe that's not going to happen either. Listen, if if this phrase is not true. In him, we have an obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all 
all things according to the counsel of his will. If that statement is not true, you and I have bought into a terrible belief system. Because we really don't know whether God can make good on these wonderful promises. How comfortable is that? Depending on how you interpret Hebrews chapter 6, you've got a different problem on your hand. If that's what happens here. Right, verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him. You also, right? So we're not robots in this. We actually play a part. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with a promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee. Guaranteed by who? By God. Sealed you, made a decision to seal you with a guarantee. His guarantee that this is actually going to come to pass. But you made a decision in this. There's nobody in this who didn't make a decision. Who didn't put their faith and their belief and their trust and their hope in Christ. All right, so God made a decision. What's, what's the nature of the decision that God makes with regards to our salvation? God made a decision long before you and I were here. And he created a plan. And so there's a decision and a plan that are connected with each other. Not just in Ephesians chapter 1. But here in Romans chapter 9 as well. Verse 3. The Apostle Paul says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed. And cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. What's Paul talking about here? Paul is going from city to city, place to place, preaching the gospel. And Jews are rejecting Jesus left and right. The gospel is going to Gentiles. The people of the Old Testament that God had selected... They're rejecting the Christ over and over and over again. And Paul is observing that and his heart is broken. Paul's a Jew. And he's watching his own people reject God's provision of a savior. And he's greatly troubled by it. "Ah, I, I would be a curse for the sake of them. If me being a curse could bring them into the kingdom. That's what he's saying here. They are Israelites And listen to these Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. He breaks out a list of eight unique blessings that belong to Israel in this. And he says... Yet they don't belong to God. All these things are true about them. And yet they are not God's people. Make sure you catch that. Because if you don't have that and you try and read Hebrews chapter 6. You're going to be going, wait, wait. Look what it said about these people. Well, look what this says about these people, right? And then Paul has to explain this. Wait. I thought God had a plan. Has, has his plan failed? These people are all rejecting Christ. His plan must have failed. And that's where we get verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year. God says, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Do you understand? This is Paul saying, you know what? You can stare at this big group called Israel. And and all these blessings have been uniquely given to them. Listen, the catalog. Here's the Old Testament. So they're all Israelites. 
And these blessings from God have all come to them. But let me just make you aware of something. They're not all Israel who have descended from Israel. Does that sound like this guy's playing word games with us? Paul, you're messing with my head now, dude. What do you mean they're not all Israel who have descended from Israel? And he clarifies, no, 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 the Israel that I'm speaking of, these promised people who belong to God uniquely, they come through the promise of God, that plan thing, that purpose thing. They come from that. Oh, God's plan hasn't failed. You just have misread God's plan. You, you thought this nation, no, 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 no. Within this nation, there is a group whom God made a decision about. I'm going to bless this line. God made this decision. And then it gets even more hairier. Verse 10. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. Well, then why were any decision being made? Well, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Why were these decisions being made? Because God has a plan. God has a purpose. And that purpose is running in the background. It's like a heavenly software program that's running. And everything that exists reports back to it. And so here Paul's just explaining this purpose of God in election. That election is a big fancy theological word for God choosing in advance. God making a decision about salvation. See, this is the origins of salvation. Salvation doesn't start with us. By the time it gets to us, it's been working for a long time. And it originated in God who set it in place this way. This is where it starts. Not because, not because of works. But because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger as it's written. Jacob I loved. But Esau I hated. Why can you and I sit in this room today and have an ounce of confidence. An ounce of confidence that this whole salvation thing will ever succeed. Well because of this. In order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works. But because of him who calls. Because where we're about to go in this book. Is to advertise the assurance that we have. And that the hope that we have. But if your hope of your salvation starts the day you made a decision for Jesus. Good luck getting to the end. Because really, was it, was it your decision that you're depending upon the most to keep you going all the way to the end? Have, any, have you had any problems since then? Right, these guys are having problems. They're tempted to walk away. You had anything like that? You had life come along and treat you in a way that you can't figure out how to, how to connect this with God and whether he really loves you and really does have a purpose for this? You had moments like that? What's going to keep you to the end? Your decision to get in and your decision to make, that's what's going to keep you to the end because this book is trying to reroute your attention to another's decision so that you could actually have some assurance and some hope. And if you misplace that, you're just left with your decision and your decision today and your decision tomorrow and your decision next year and 10 years from now. And I hope they're good decisions, but I know me. You know you? How good a decision is that really going to be when the chips are really down and things are really, really bad? So there's another decision being made here that informs salvation, that makes it this thing that has assurance in it, right? Just chase a little rabbit here outside of Paul's thoughts. You, you get John presenting a decision here. And you get John chapter 1, you have the whole born again dynamic of a believer. Like, how's that happening for us? John 1 verse 9 says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, right? Do you remember that word in Hebrews 6? Enlightened, they were, this, this other case group, they were enlightened. Well, so were these. The light came into the world. The grace of God came in the person of Jesus Christ. Lots of people interacted with him. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. They were enlightened. 
in some way, right? But keep reading. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet, the world did not know him. He drew crowds. Lots of people were curious about Jesus. They got around him. They saw his miracles. They heard his teaching. Remember, they they responded. No one's ever talked like this. They recognized this person is unique. And they saw his light. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Oh, how did that happen? Because that group that got enlightened didn't receive him. So how did this group receive him? Well, those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Why did they receive him? Well, because they were born of God. God had made a decision so that they could make a decision, right? And there's another group here. There's another case study within all these passages of people who don't believe. And at the end of the day, the angels stand around the throne of heaven. I love the song that we sang, making us aware of that today. They, st- they stand around the throne of heaven. And when any of us come to Christ, they don't gather and say, look at Keith. Look at, you know, I, I, knew, I, had, I had money on him. I knew, I knew he would figure this out. He, you know, he was smart. He was a pretty, you know, good third grader. And I just, I just knew high five. Yeah. Keith made a decision for Jesus. Oh, that's so great. Isn't it? All of heaven turns to the throne. When anybody comes to Christ and bows down, knowing that couldn't happen without you doing something to make it happen. That's the source of our salvation. Don't doubt it for a second. So where's this Romans nine passage come from? Well, this is what generates Romans 9's deep content, a passage we all love in Romans chapter 8, this big giant guarantee passage, right? We, we quote this when times are tough, Romans eight twenty eight. For we know that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. There's that purpose word again. All things are reporting back to the little software program running in the background that God made a decision to press the button on at the beginning of time before anybody did anything. So everything is reporting back to that. For, and then you get unpacked this a little bit, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. That's God deciding. God decided this. To be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What does that word glorified mean? Right, well, we know glory is the next phase of our existence. We enter into glorified bodies. We enter into a state of glory. That's eternity in heaven. So you have people who were chosen by God way back here, but eventually they start getting personal. We're justified, etc. But that same group of people are glorified in the end. None of them fall out along the way. He loses none of them. John Frame says, remember, our salvation goes back even before the beginning of our faith into eternity past. Salvation begins in election. Paul sees a golden chain from God's foreknowledge and predestination in eternity past to calling and justification to glorification. Those who are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ cannot fail to be glorified. They cannot. I need to know that. If I'm going to go back to Hebrews chapter 6 and try and figure out, wait a minute. That's a weighty statement that just got said in Hebrews chapter 6. So I'm going to give you two quick guidelines. I'm going to throw a little bit more weight in this direction, and then I'm going to race toward the end. All right, guidelines for interpreting a passage. One, bring your Bible with you. Your whole Bible. Right? I have had conversations with folks through the years who, and I totally get this. I'm not unsympathetic to this. The critique of divine activity with human insights. I'm, I'm, I'm not unfamiliar with that, right? I'm, I'm just a fellow idiot. 
So I look at what God does sometimes and I go, what the heck? That doesn't make any sense. Right? You're not alone. So the idea that God chooses things before anything exists, not in response to them, but in a predetermined way before anything deserves anything. I'm from earth, you know, I like the word fair because I'm an idiot. Nobody should like the word fair. If you read the Bible carefully, you should hate that word. You don't want fairness. That would mean you get what you deserve. So God figures out a way for us to get what we don't deserve. He acts in an unfair way. And so this whole doctrine of election freaks people out. I get that. But if you take the whole Bible with you, you may not like the doctrine of election, but the one thing you can't deny is that it's all over the Bible, all over the place in the Bible. You might not like it. You may not fully understand it, but if you'll be honest and let the Bible speak for itself, you will find the doctrine of election all over the place in the Bible. It's not like, oh, well, there's a two or three obscure passages. Oh, no, no, no. It's everywhere. God making clear he is the mover and shaker of everything that exists in this world before you and I did anything. Right, so if you're going to interpret this passage, bring your whole Bible with you. Secondly, consider carefully the passage in light of all these other scriptures and particularly the context in which it's set. Right, so those are the two things. We're coming to a Bible passage. So if I'm going to take some of the rest of the Bible with me, let me just race through these. Right, I'm not going to comment on I'm just going to race through these with you. You can go back and look at them. And there's many more where these friends came from. Right, so the whole Bible on the nature of salvation. John 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Some, a few, all. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to run the software program that my father's running. I've come to do his will. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing. Of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. And not a lot of wiggle room in that, is there? That's a very forceful promise of this group of people. That the father has given to the son. That no one is lost. Philippians 1.6. I'm sure of this. I'm sure of this. He who began a good work in you will. He will. Bring it to completion. At the day of Jesus Christ. Jude 1. Verse 24. Now to him. Who is able to keep you. He is able to keep you. From stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. First Corinthians one, verse seven, as you wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called. Calling is that decision that God made before any of us were here. That's what that is. Ephesians 4, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Not for the day that you walked away, for the day of redemption. For this is the will of my Father, John 6, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will, I will, I will raise him up on the last day. All right, quick little, well, what about people who, I don't know, you know, I know people who, man, they were Christians and, and they're not anymore. All right, everybody's got somebody in mind right now. All right, many verses, one example, 1 John 2. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. 
But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you, right, case study, different case study, but you have been anointed by the Holy Spirit. You all have knowledge. Right, so you're a little different than this other group who did go out from among us. But there are reasons why they went out from among us, and that gets explained in this passage. Right, so I pull us back to Hebrews chapter 6 now, and we just look in the, in the context that's right there. By the time you get to Hebrews chapter 6, you have lived in the example of Israel from Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 4. You remember all that? The story of the wilderness, the people who failed to enter in because of their unbelief, and the warnings that are attached to them. Hey, don't follow their example. All right, so we already have a people group that has failed to enter into something that's been previously explained to us, and, and it's the Israelites. Now, the words in Hebrews 6 are a little bit of a challenging set of words because they describe things that, like, they were enlightened. And, and you tasted of the goodness of the word of God. You tasted of the Holy Spirit. You tasted of the powers that are to come. All right, so I'm not going to take too much time on, on that one point just to theologically inform, how do I respond to that? Because it does say they were enlightened and they tasted. All right, if, simple illustration here. If you go to a restaurant and somebody comes over and says, you know, we have this dish, blah, 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 blah. Oh, I've never had that. Oh, would you like to taste it? Sure. And they bring it over to you and you taste it, but you don't order it. Did you taste it? Yeah. Did you order it? No. You can taste all kinds of things. You can get enlightened by stuff. It doesn't mean you became something different as a result of those exchanges, which is exactly true of Paul explaining the people who were in the wilderness. When Paul speaks about them, he says, hey, hey, don't get freaked out by their their unbelief. They're not all Israel who descended from Israel. God's plan hasn't failed. Don't lose your confidence. God's plan continues. It hasn't failed. Ken Hughes says, The participation in spiritual realities of those who, quote, fall away, though they have been enlightened and shared and tasted the things of God, parallels the privileged experience of the children of Israel in the wilderness, who fell away and died in unbelief. As part of the covenant community, the fallen Israelites had placed blood on their doorposts, eaten the Passover lamb, miraculously crossed the Red Sea, observed the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, tasted the miraculous waters of Mara, daily ate manna, and heard the voice of God at Sinai. But their hearts were hardened in unbelief, and they fell away from the living God. So Hebrews 6 has an explanation to it. That case study is different than this case study in that passage. Right. And then Hebrews 6 turns around and offers us its own commentary. Right? We should let the whole Bible be commentary to any verse, but this passage immediately gives us a commentary in verses 7 through 8. Immediately after this falling away warning, we get verse 7. For the land that has drunk the rain, that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. So there's rain and blessings from God that come that produce a redeemed crop. And then verse 8. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. What's being burned here? The thorns and thistles? No, the land out of which came thorns and thistles rather than out of which coming life. Right, so you have two different groups here because you were told you had two different groups when we started. One of them gets illustrated by the blessings of God falling on it and it produces life. The other one, the blessings of God fall on it and it produces thorns and thistles. And that ground is cursed. Matter of fact, it's the Genesis 3 curse. If you pay careful attention, it takes a lot to get you and I out of that cursed condition. It takes a whole lot more than my decision and yours. It takes a plan from the foundations of the world of a God who decided that will not be the last word for these lives, thorns and thistles. 
God, by his grace, has rerouted this. But this verse is intended to accomplish something. It's intentionally shocking. It's trying to be. Don't dismiss that in all that I just said. This verse is supposed to freak you out. I try to think, oh, what's a good illustration that freaks me out? Because something looks one way, and then all of a sudden you hear shocking news about it. Uh, I, this is what came to mind. Sorry, I'm a basketball fan. Night, late 1980s, and I hear news that Pete Maravich has died. He was 40 years old. He died of, of heart failure. I was shocked, like, that can't possibly be true. The dude was, you know, he's like this big obese guy. He was lean and healthy. He played basketball his whole life. Was anybody in better shape than this guy? There's no way. And he fell dead on the basketball court playing a pickup game? That can't be true. Well, apparently his health gave one appearance. But the reality of it was something else. And that's what this verse is trying to get us to do. You can look one way on the outside, but it's warning us about something that's taking place on the inside. All right, so there's a strong presentation here. You know, there's going to be a shift here at the end, you know, where he turns around verse nine and says, hey, though we speak this way, though we just freaked you out by what we said, yet in your case, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Right? Your story is a salvation story. That other story I just told was not. It was something that looked like salvation. It dressed up in salvation. It had the blessings of God falling all over it. And you would have thought these people are saved, but they're not. You, however, are a different group. And that's what this passage is teaching here. Right now, you can go back and look at some of the other Hebrews passages. Because I want to I end with, with this thought. And I want us to pray for a moment. In history, this verse gets disassociated from Hebrews, quite honestly, and and it gets debated through history. You've been in churches where this is debated. You have debated it. You've read this passage and go, I don't know, Keith. I mean, that sounds fancy and everything, but I don't know. It says they fell away, okay? And it says they were enlightened, and it says, okay, I get you. I get you. A A lot of angles of argument here. And then there's many of you who right now are going, Okay, now I see why that would be really hard for that to be true because it creates fits with the rest of the Bible, which is how you should interpret every Bible passage, right? You shouldn't conclude something about a Bible passage and silence the rest of the Bible in doing it. You should make your interpretation give an account to the rest of the Bible. And I've just given you a thimble full of the rest of the Bible in the area of salvation. So here's what's, here's what's likely among us in the room today. I've always believed that you can't lose your salvation, right? I've always believed that. And you just helped me today to prove it even more. Okay, that's helpful. It'll be very helpful for us as we move towards assurance and hope, etc. But this is not the writer of Hebrews chasing a rabbit, He doesn't decide, hey, can I just time out real quick? Can I just run off over here about whether you can lose your salvation or not? And we'll just have a little talk about that and then I'll get back to my point. He's trying to make a point here. And the point is about believers listening to him instruct them about their sluggishness. It's a warning about being sluggish. So isn't it amazing how we could be seated here today and we could be convinced, well, yeah, amen, brother. I appreciate you saying all that, man. Because I knew, I knew before I came in here, I knew you can't lose your salvation. Man, that's ridiculous. You can't lose your salvation. All right, this, the point of this message in Hebrews is not to get you to leave today going, yep, yep, I knew that, I knew that. The point is, do you know that and yet you're still sluggish? Are you at peace with being dull? Have you grown comfortable with a disaffection for God? Nothing seems to be impacting you. Maybe you read your Bible, maybe you don't. Maybe you sang these songs wholeheartedly today, maybe you didn't. You had a lot on your mind. Matter of fact, I'm kind of busy. Keith, I hope you're about done, huh? 
This Bible verse is concerned about real followers of Jesus who are in such a condition that he wants to set you in a place that sounds like maybe you're not a believer. Oh, listen, you could taste and see and have light and have all this stuff. Some people who had all that stuff walked away from God because they never were his. But they sure look like they were his. That's the point he's trying to make. Does that make us uncomfortable? It should make us uncomfortable. Because the point of warning from this context is if you begin to have a sluggish, dull disinterest in God go off in you, you better panic. That's what this verse is trying to get you to do. It's not trying to get you to be sure of your salvation. I know. I'm not interested in God. I don't worship passionately. I'm not about half of what this church is about. I don't even know if I believe this, believe that. I watch every once in a while online, somebody say something spiritual. I'm cool with whatever, man, whatever. But I know I'm going to heaven. That's why this Bible passage is here. No, it's not. It's trying to awaken you that if you are that dispassionate about God, maybe you don't really belong to him. And maybe you need to freak out this morning. Not about the insecurity of genuine belief. Because I think I've done a decent job of convincing you. If it's genuine belief, that software program started running in the beginning. And it'll run all the way to the end. And I promise you this, you will not fall out. You may have issues, bumps, disagreements, problems, etc., etc. But you're going to be glorified in the end. But this verse is trying to get you to look at the reality of your life. That's why it's here. Honestly, it's not here to debate eternal security. Although it provides some insights, doesn't it? I don't know Seth, let me get Seth to come back up. All right, let me finish with John Piper thought here. Last quote in your outline. It seems to me that the book of Hebrews has a special way of making us serious. It's a very sobering book. It's not a sad book, but it is a serious book. If you hear what it says, it blows away glib, trite, trivial attitudes about life. It does this not to make us sad, but to make us unshakably happy in God. One of the ways that Hebrews does this is with warnings about false security. There is a kind of happiness that will kill you. And the book of Hebrews is relentlessly loving and exposing this dangerous happiness and warning us to flee from its deceptions and pursue the solid happiness that will never let us down. In other words, Hebrews is written to deepen and strengthen the joy of our assurance in God. One of the strategies of the book is to expose false assurances and fleeting pleasures. That's what we are reading in Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 8. What was this writer trying to get to? Where did he want to take us? Right, if you look at the last verses there, he says, We desire, verse 11 of Hebrews 6, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness eagerness, passion, delight, some force from the inside of us that looks to God in a way that's not casual, but passionate toward him. That's where this writer wants us to go. We desire for each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have full assurance of hope until the end. Hey, when earnestness is in me, when worship and adoration is in me, assurance is in me as well. When disinterest and casual affection and other things, anything else can become more delightful for me than God, assurance is rocked in that moment. Make no mistake. So that you may not be sluggish. What was this writer trying to get us to do? Not to be distant and disinterested and disaffectioned before God. That you may not be that but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. 
Here's how I want us to close in prayer this morning. You don't, let's never make this about everybody else but us. Where does this find you? Where does this find me? Does it, does it shock me a little bit? Does it shock me into thinking about my own walk, my own distance, my own casualness, my own lack of affection toward God? What is it doing to me today? Because it's trying to kind of shock therapy and stick paddles on my chest and go, never be repenting again. Oh, that sounds serious. Impossible. Really? I know I didn't unpack that stuff, and it's scary stuff, isn't it? Because it's trying to scare us into thinking about what's the real condition of my soul before God. Because if God has started this work, it's going to continue. That doesn't mean you won't have struggles. So there's nobody in the room here who's not struggling in their faith. Nobody. But something in you wants to keep going. Something in you wants to keep growing. Something in you wants to be near to God. Something in you has a hunger and a thirst for him. Something in you does. That takes us all the way to the end. If we've really been saved. So personally, make that as personal as you need to be as we pray in just a moment. But I'm going to say some more about this towards the end of the year here. I mentioned a study that's been done by some authors who studied the body of Christ over the last decade or more. And they found this massive falling away, massive falling away in America. The book is called The Great De-Churching. And it is the story of Christians who have lost their affection for God, who have gotten busy in everything in the world that they can find, who very seldom show up among the people of God, make very little sacrifice to be involved, give very little. The average Christian gives less than 2.5% of their income to God. All these things testify that something besides God really has won our earnestness. And that's in the world that we live in. So great concern that we have as, as pastors and leaders in this hour of the body of Christ is it seems as though this word sluggish is too common in the average life of a Christian. Unmotivated, lacking interest, nothing seems to zing me. I'm not easily and deeply convicted. Just kind of could take it or leave it. Two things. Can you, can you just pray about your own walk with God in that category? But can you join us in praying together? God, would you help us in this hour? That sluggishness is too common in the body of Christ today. Lord, could you bring that to an end? Could you bring us into a new day? Because your plan goes all the way to the end. So you're the one that we need to appeal to. You can appeal to people. God, appeal to you to do that in us. But let's stand up. Let's stand up together and pray together. Maybe you guys are joining us live stream. Thanks for tuning in to us. This noisy moment in Hebrews. Let's just bow our hearts, bow our heads. Maybe wherever you are, if you're driving in a car, don't close your eyes, but listen a little differently. Lord, this book of Hebrews finds a group of people. And at one moment, you begin to want to talk to them about something deeper. Something that they should have a category for. Something that should awaken in them important understandings for their life about the high priesthood of Christ. And you stop in that moment and you say, I really do want to talk to you about this. But you don't have any place to put it. You won't understand it. You've become dull and immature. And you need to keep moving. You need to move on. You need to learn some deeper things. You need to have your discernment trained constantly to know the difference between what is good and what is evil. Lord, that's what they needed. Lord, I think our day needs this as well. Lord, your words were sobering. You spoke about two types of ground. One that would produce life and one that could only grow thorns and thistles. Lord, you want us to consider which ground are we? Which ground am I? 
So Lord, would you give us grace for consideration? Lord, this is, this is what happens when you study through a book verse by verse. It takes you to places that you didn't want to go, to verses that make us uncomfortable. And maybe we could have avoided these verses, but you inspired them and you placed them for believers to hear. Lord, this wasn't taken out in the New York Times. This was written into the word of God for the people of God to hear. So Lord, it was to warn them and sober them. It is to warn us and sober us as well. Let us examine where we are with you. Lord, have I lost my affections for you? Have other things taken your place? Is the earnestness of my delight in you lost, Lord? Because there are people who tasted of the word in this passage and were enlightened in some way and even got around the Holy Spirit and saw something of the power of God who weren't yours. Lord, would you make sure we hear that so that our heart turns to you? Because this passage is ultimately about strengthening our assurance that even though we've hit a moment where we feel like we're disaffection, Lord, ultimately you are strengthening our hope in you. That's what you're doing today. But God, we got to stop for a moment and see, is my, is my gas tank about empty? And God, for anybody here right now who's here or watching, feeling that way, Lord, would you join them in this moment? Would you bring clarity that only you can bring? God, your desire is not for anybody to feel cut off from you. Desires for them to draw near to you, Lord. This book is about drawing near to you. So, Lord, for every person whose affections have gone dormant, oh, gracious God, would you awaken our affections for you once again? Would you awaken them in us that a fire would burn in our bones that longs for you and for your kingdom, for your glory to be seen? Like nothing else in our lives. Nothing else in our lives, Lord. May everything else start becoming second, third, and fourth for the sheer delight that has been given to us by your spirit. Lord, you have a purpose that you set in place from the foundations of the world. God, we look to that purpose and our hope is that you will fulfill those purposes working everything according to your will. God, we pray for this moment in the life of the American church in particular. God, a moment where hearts have wandered from you and delight in you has become less and less intense. Lord, would you rescue this moment of de-churching? Lord, would you reach into genuine believers and wake them back to walking with you and celebrating you and delighting in you. Lord, would you call back the people of God to live for you passionately, to taste and see your goodness and to celebrate it with one another in ways that are convincing and awakening each of us mutually. Lord, we long for that day. We pray for your grace to come among us in greater ways. As we sang in our worship time, God, you would revive our city by reviving your church, Lord. May that be, Lord, the story of your assurance at work in us, faithful God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I bless you guys. Hey, if you're here this morning and you need prayer for anything going on in your life, please don't miss the opportunity to come join the prayer team and let them pray with you. Those of you guys joining us, our live stream or watching online, love you, praying for you. Hope to see you soon.